You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. This kingdom will never be defeated. It's going to grow to cover the entire world. Another passage that talks about the kingdom that the Messiah was going to bring is Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 through 7. Right? This is the Christmas passage, right? You all know this one. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Happy Father's Day, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government, And of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Isaiah tells us that when the Messiah comes, the government of the Messiah, that is his kingdom, will be upon his shoulders. He's going to reign over the kingdom of God. Right, And this is while he sits on the throne of David which I've made an argument from Acts chapter 2, that that happened at the ascension of Christ. And then this happens. Verse 7 is often skipped over. The increase of his government, the increase of his kingdom will have no end. No end. Just like Daniel said. The stone that grows into a mountain that covers the whole world to the point where it takes over the whole world. And again, this happens as he sits on the throne of David over his kingdom. So his kingdom is going to continue to grow throughout all of human history. And the result is peace, isn't it? Peace on earth. Again, I sound like I'm singing a Christmas hymn. Peace on earth. How does that work? How does peace come as the kingdom grows? Well, as people are converted to Christ, what happens? They seek to live like Jesus and submit to the law of God found in the scripture. So war would progressively cease as people desire to live righteously. Right? And those who are brought under the lordship of Jesus begin to rule justly over countries. And then an era of peace begins. You can read about this in Isaiah chapter 2 as well. If Christ's kingdom expands, then the kingdoms of the world must of necessity die. And therefore peace and righteousness throughout the world is going to expand as well. A third passage for your consideration. Remember, we're asking the question, what is the kingdom like? What is prophesied to happen over the kingdom that Jesus currently rules over? Isaiah chapter 11, verses 6 through 9. This is a description of the reign of the Messiah. Verses 1 through 5 tell us what the Messiah is going to be like. We know that that's Jesus. And then what the reign of Messiah is going to be like, 6 through 9. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like an ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now this sounds like an era of peace. The the imagery is things that were once at odds with each other are now at peace with one another under the reign of the Lord Jesus. And why is that? Verse 9 tells us. It's an explanatory statement. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of Yahweh as the waters cover the sea. So during the reign of Messiah, at some point, the whole earth becomes saturated 
with not just head knowledge, but intimate relational knowledge of the one true God. It sounds like Isaiah is saying that the gospel goes out, people are converted in masses, and then an era of righteousness and peace exists because everyone knows God. We see these same ideas in the gospels. When Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, you guys know this one, very short parable, Matthew 13, 33, Jesus says the kingdom of heaven, that is the kingdom of God, those are the synonymous terms, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. Jesus' kingdom is like yeast that works its way through the dough. What happens whenever yeast works its way through dough? It changes the entire batch of dough from the inside out. Yes, it takes time, but eventually the yeast does its job and leavens the whole batch of dough. This is a picture of constant, progressive change as the kingdom of God works its way through the world. Or maybe most famously, you'll remember the parable of the mustard seed. Right? Mark chapter 4, verses 30 through 32, which, by the way, it was me preaching this back in November that then set me off on this trajectory. I accidentally became post-millennial. Right? This was not on purpose. It was just preaching through the text made me think about things differently. In the parable of the mustard seed, Jesus tells us that the kingdom of God is like a grain of mustard seed. When it's put in the ground, it's the smallest of all the seeds in the garden. But then given enough time, it grows until what happens? It becomes the largest plant in the garden. This, I think, is Jesus just giving us a new parable of what Daniel said in Daniel chapter 2. The small stone that grows to become a mountain that fills the whole earth. Tiny mustard seed that grows to be the most dominant plant in the garden. This is what the kingdom's like. So I think it's very clear that the Bible speaks of Christ's kingdom absolutely growing and eventually dominating the world. The word of God says that the kingdom is eternal. It has no end to its increase. The whole world comes into it. It destroys all other kingdoms, and where it spreads, it brings what? Righteousness and peace with it. But, let's be fair, right? Other end times beliefs believe those things too, right? Like, like some of you who disagree, you say, yeah, like all those things are going to happen. I don't deny those passages, right? If you disagree with what I'm putting forth, you don't deny any of those texts. Everyone believes that in one way or another, those things are going to happen, one way or another, all those things that I've read to you are going to happen. But the question is, when? When do those things happen? Do, do, do these things all happen in this age? Or do they, they happen after the second coming of Jesus? Or does it happen spiritually for now, but then in a more literal way whenever Jesus returns? When do these things happen? If you would... Use your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 24 through 26. And I want you to turn there because this is the passage that made me go, oh. <laughs> All right, I'll listen, right? This, this might not be crazy. Post-mill might be true. It was this passage, 1 Corinthians 15, 24 through 26. You guys are still tracking with me. I'm glad. Now, some context for you. Paul, the Apostle Paul, is talking about the resurrection of the dead in verses 20 through 23. Then at or that at Jesus' second coming, the resurrection happens. Right? That's where Paul leaves off in verse 23. Then Paul says this. Then comes the end. When he, Jesus, delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. 
the last enemy to be destroyed is death. So the end comes. That is the end of human history is what Paul is saying. The end comes after the second coming and resurrection of the dead. And when the end comes, Paul says in verse 24 that Jesus delivers the kingdom to God the Father. But he only delivers the kingdom after destroying every rule, authority, and power. Okay, so there's a sequence of events here. I think if you look at the verse backwards, you'll see the sequence of events. Jesus destroys every rule, authority, and power. Then he delivers the kingdom to God the Father. Then comes the end of the second coming when the resurrection of the dead happens. That's what's, that's what's in verse 24. So before Jesus can return... All of his enemies have to be conquered. I'm not being a smart aleck. That is literally what Paul says in verse 24. The end comes after, that's a time mark, after every rule, authority, and power is destroyed. Then comes verse 25, which is the reasoning for those sequence of events. For, or because, he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. So he must reign as he is doing right now on his throne in heaven, I, I think I've made a decent case for that from Psalm 110, Acts 2, Daniel 7. He's, he's ruling right now from his throne. He must reign as he is doing now in heaven until all of his enemies are conquered. And then comes the end when he returns. So Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus stays in heaven where he reigns until something else happens. Until his enemies are conquered. Then, I know I'm, I'm, I'm laboring the point on purpose. I want you to see this. It took me a while to see it. Then, after all the worldly authorities, ruler, rule, and powers are destroyed by the reign of King Jesus, then he comes back and raises the dead, which is defeating the last enemy, death, in verse 26. And then comes the end. When Jesus returns, the only enemy left to be defeated is death. And that's what happens whenever Jesus raises the dead that Paul's talking about in verses 20 through 23. Now, most of our understanding, for real, this is what got me. Most of our understanding of the end is that Jesus comes back and then destroys his enemies. And then the end comes, right? That's how most of us think about things. He comes back, cleans house, and then the end comes. That is not what Paul says in these verses. I really I don't mean to sound, to sound like a smart aleck, but that's not what Paul says. He says that all of his enemies are conquered, and then he returns. Paul says that Jesus must reign until then. That's a reference to Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. That means that the end will not come, and Christ will not return until he has full dominion over the world. This portion of scripture, 1 Corinthians 15, 24-26, contains the heartbeat of the hope of postmillennialism. Jesus will conquer his enemies before the end comes. That is, before he returns. He will do so as he reigns on the throne of David in heaven that he's doing right now. Now, I know that that might sound wild to the vast majority of us, but I think that's what Paul's holding out here in 1 Corinthians 15. Right? Some of you say, well, how can that be, man? Like that just, again, it just, it's so foreign to us. But hear me out. The fall of man, the covenants, redemption through Jesus, all of God's work happen 
When? When does God's works happen? In human history. So why not the dominion and victory of Christ too? Why should that have to wait until his second coming? Why should that wait? Why shouldn't his kingdom reign in this age when all the rest of his work was done in this age too? Wouldn't it be fitting? But taking all of this together, if I'm correct, and I recognize that's a big if, if I'm correct, then it is reasonable, even promised by God himself, that Christianity will be the dominant force throughout the whole world prior to the return of Jesus. And that the kingdom, the dominion and reign of Christ, will be experienced and made manifest in the world in this age. That Christ will conquer the world and then return as the victorious, conquering king who has subjected the world to his reign by his cross. This seems to fit what we see of Christ in the Gospels. And how is he going to do this? How is Jesus pleased to exercise his dominion throughout the world? It's done through the preaching of the gospel. That's how this is done. Through his message of good news. That the kingdom has come. You ever wondered what it means that Jesus is preaching the the gospel of the kingdom? It's that the kingdom has come with him. And that he's king. And that he's purchased forgiveness and entrance into the kingdom for all who will believe on him. And that his kingdom is going to take over the world. And that righteousness is going to eventually reign. That's good news. That's good news for the world. That all things are being brought into subjection to the king of kings. That's why he's called that. And the Lord of all lords. That all peoples, nations, and tongues will know the Lord someday and worship him together. That righteousness and peace will reign throughout the world as the world is won by Christ. That's the gospel that we preach. Our king reigns. And he's been so kind as to secure your citizenship into the kingdom by dying for your sins. By granting you amnesty, a rebel sinner who should have no part in his kingdom. But he's been so kind as to make a way through his life, death, and resurrection on your behalf to bring you into this victorious kingdom. That's a full-orbed gospel. That's a full-orbed gospel. But again, this dominion of Christ is realized through the preaching of the gospel. Hear me. It's not done through a political organization. That's where some people get this whole idea wrong. It's not done through a political organization. Now, Jesus is going to have dominion over the governments too. Read Isaiah chapter 2. It says Messiah is going to rule between the nations. right? He's going to have dominion over the governments as well. But how is all this going to happen? Through the preaching of the gospel. Read the kingdom parables in in Mark chapter 4. That's how the kingdom grows. Through the preaching of the word of God. As we preach and God saves sinners, the kingdom grows. As we hold out salvation, as we preach Christ and him crucified, as people are saved, the kingdom grows. As people are made new by the work of the Spirit of God, righteousness grows and the kingdoms of this world are shaken to their foundation. Really, hear me, it's God who actually does this. right? It's God who gives the increase. Isn't that what Paul says in 1 Corinthians? I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. It's God who grows the kingdom of his beloved son. Remember what Isaiah, 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 I sound like a British person. Remember what Isaiah chapter 9 says. 
The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So the church preaching the gospel is just the means that God is pleased to grow the kingdom of his beloved son. Now I know that there are definitely objections to what I'm saying this evening. (laughs) I can see them on your faces. (laughs) Um, So let me address, I had three in my notes, but I'm just going to address one. and, and, And I'm willing to talk to any of you guys about any of this stuff. But the number one objection that I hear after people tell me they think that I've been smoking dope, um, (laughs) the number one thing that I hear is this. Have you looked at the world lately, dude? Have you looked? There's no way that things are going to get better. There's no way that things are going to get as good as what you're saying. Two things to that. One, yes, I have looked out at the world. And not to diminish the bad things that we see, But to be honest, things are a lot better for the church today than they were in the first century. I'm just being honest. Things are a lot better. Progress has been made. And where the church has taken root, that's where the most good in the world has happened, isn't it? Western culture. Why? Because Christendom reigned. Where the gospel goes, people flourish. That's why things are better for the church now than it was in the first century. Where the gospel goes and takes root, good things happen. Our influence on the world is much greater today than it was when the church first began. And to quote Doug Wilson, if we took over the world once, why can't we take it over again? Just throwing that out there. But more than that, second thing, look at the world. Have you not seen the world? How could this be true? Please hear me. This is is a little bit sharp, but this was good for me to hear. We don't do newspaper exegesis, do we? What I mean is we don't read the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other. We don't let current events determine our interpretation of the word of God, do we? No, we don't. So if God says that he's going to do something, then he's going to do it. No matter how impossible it may seem. Point in case, remember Abram? Abraham, so he turned into... God told him, I'm going to give you descendants as numerous as the sands of the seashore, as numerous as the stars of the sky. But look how old Abraham was. Paul in Romans 4 says, he was near to death, or as good as dead is what Paul says. He was that old. And look at Abram's wife, how old she was. I think she was in her 90s, 80s or 90s, and barren her entire life. Did that matter? No. No. Why? Because God accomplishes his purposes. And if he says he's going to do something, he's going to do it. So the question is not, have you looked out at the world? The question is, has God promised this kind of victory in the word of God? That's the question you need to ask. Because if he has, then it's going to happen. The question is, is this what God has promised? Now I have a few more things I'd like for you guys to consider in support of this position. These are just some miscellaneous things that I just wanted to lay before you that I found compelling as I was studying this, and then we'll get into some application. First thing for you to consider is the Great Commission. Right? You guys know that well. Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. Jesus commissions his church to go and disciple the nations. But what does he say before that? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority on earth Before he tells us to go and make disciples of the nations, he says what? The world is mine. I have all the authority on the earth. To have authority means you have dominion. That as as Dave read to us, Psalm 2, that the nations are his to inherit. 
And it's with this authority that he has over the whole world that he sends us forth to, in his name and by his gospel, conquer it in his power and in his authority. And I think personally this has an Old Testament parallel. You guys know the nation of Israel was promised the land of Canaan. God told them that what land was theirs to inherit, right? And then by God's power, what happened? They went and took the land. Brothers and sisters, this world belongs to Jesus right now is what he said in Matthew 28. All authority on earth is his. He has all the authority and all the dominion. So now he says, go, take the land. The meek shall inherit the earth, right? It's my land. I'm commissioning you now to go and declare my lordship over every single square inch of this place because it's mine. Jesus has already won. He's going to inherit the nations. Therefore, go. Second thing for you to consider, the gates of hell. You guys know a very famous passage, Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. Jesus said, the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church that he built. Right? You guys know that, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, most of the time we read that and we think, well, that means Satan will never conquer the church. Right? The church will exist in the world no matter how small it gets, no matter how badly Satan beats us down, we will continue on. Right? And that's right on, right? Sound like Joe Dirt. That's right on, right? It, it, it's certainly true. The church is always going to exist. But a quick question for you, and this changed everything for me on this verse. Are gates offensive or defensive? Now, I'm not dumb. I know that you can attack from a gate. But are gates primarily used for offensive or defensive purposes? Gates are primarily defensive. This means that the picture Jesus gives is one of the church on the offensive. And he says that, that Satan, the gates of hell, will not be able to prevail, will not keep the church from breaking down his strongholds and taking the city that lies beyond the gates. I think that's the world. This is a picture of the church's victory over the world, over the kingdom of Satan. We are to kick in the gates of hell and then go and ransack the city beyond the walls and claim it in the name of the Lord Jesus. And we have the promise of Christ that we will succeed in taking the city because the gates won't be able to keep us out. And the last thing for you to consider before we go into application. I know I've been up here for a while. You'll be all right. Cut grass in hotter weather than this. You'll be cool. The Lord's Prayer. In 1 John chapter 5, verses 14 and 15, we're told something very important for our prayer lives. We're told that if we ask anything according to the will of God, He hears us. And if we know he hears us, then we know we have the requests that we have asked of him. So if we ask anything that God wills, if we pray according to his will, then he's going to do it. Why? Because God is always pleased to do his holy will. Well, keeping that in mind, God the Son actually tells us what to pray for in the Lord's Prayer. So in this prayer, we actually see what the will of God is. And in that prayer, there are two lines that speak to our topic this evening. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now when we pray that God's kingdom would come, we're not praying that it would be established. I think I've already covered that Jesus established the kingdom with his first coming. What we're praying then, thy kingdom come, we're praying that the kingdom would be made more and more manifest. 
that the kingdom would come more and more. It's already here, but it's not yet fully consummated. We're praying that the kingdom would grow, that sinners would be converted, that Satan would be conquered more and more in the world. We're, we're praying for kingdom expansion when we pray, Thy kingdom come. And then when we pray, Your will be done, we're asking that God's will would be done on earth. On earth, like where you can see it. This is a prayer for righteousness and godliness to cover the earth. For God to be highly esteemed. Right? Again, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. That his name would be kept holy throughout the whole world. That the people of the world would reflect God's good character. Brothers and sisters, God is pleased to answer those prayers that he tells us to pray. Therefore, he is pleased to expand the kingdom and cause his will to be done more and more in this age. I don't believe Jesus gave us a futile prayer that God's not really going to answer in this age. I believe he's going to do what he tells us to ask him to do. And if I'm right, if I'm right, then that means the kingdom is going to continuously grow until God's will is done on earth just like it is in heaven. Now let's move into some application. If I'm right... If I'm understanding things rightly, if this is indeed what the Bible teaches, I know for most of you that's a big if, but if this is what the Bible teaches, then this changes everything. I mean everything. Changes everything. This changes how we look at missions. There's hope for history. There's hope for this world. America as a country Maybe a lost hope. I think, honestly, anything short of a massive revival, bigger than anything we've ever seen in this nation, this country probably is a lost hope. But this continent is not a lost hope. And future generations are not a lost hope. The Middle East and Africa, with all of their pagan religions and strongholds of Islam, is not a lost hope. China, with its awful reign of communism. North Korea, with its awful dictatorship. They are not lost hopes. Why? Because Jesus will have dominion. And his kingdom will eventually topple those worldly and pagan empires just like the stone in Daniel 2. It's just a matter of time. So then we can send missionaries with confidence that in the long term, they're going to change the world forever. And we can evangelize with that same hope. You know, I don't know if you know this, but historically speaking, it was actually godly men and women who believed what I've set before you this evening who started the modern missions movement. And why did they start them? They, they believed that, that, that God was going to do what the Bible says. They went to desolate and godless places because they believed that Jesus is going to conquer the world. So just putting this out there, maybe this is just in my heart, and I'm not trying to project onto you guys, but maybe our zeal for missions has gone down some in recent times because we have a defeatist mentality. What's it matter? Why polish, polish brass on a sinking ship? But if this doctrine is right, then we have a lot of hope. And therefore, we should send people out and go ourselves to conquer the world in the name of Christ. Second thing, this changes how we desire to interact with the world. Instead of just retreating into an evangelical bomb shelter, because things are never going to get any better, and I know I can't be the only one that's felt like that, right? What's the point in fighting? Let's just hide. Instead of thinking that way, because we think things are never going to get better before Christ comes back. If this doctrine is true, we are now pushed forward to go and engage the world with the word of God because we know Jesus is going to conquer the nations and governments and change the world in history. 
This emboldens us to engage the world in all spheres of life with the gospel. Politics, the arts, literature, everything. It all belongs to Jesus. And therefore, if this is right, to refuse to engage is really not to believe the promises of God. A third thing, this changes our entire outlook on the Christian life, I think. Please hear me. And again, maybe this is just me. But we're not fighting a losing battle if this doctrine is true. It's not like you're at a football game where your coach tells you before kickoff, you're going to lose bad. (laughs) But go out and play your heart out anyway. That's not what we've been told. We're not commanded to go out and lose this one for Jesus, right? That's not what we're being told to do if this doctrine is right. We're told to go out and fight a battle that our king says we're going to win. Eventually, the church may be in its infancy, but eventually we're going to win. So all of the things that we do in our lives, all of the battles, all of the theological battles, all of the desire to to see justice reign throughout the world, all the things that we fight for as Christians actually matter because the battle is not going to be lost. In our personal lives, though we're not probably in our day going to see this victory, Our lives matter because we recognize that God's design over our life is to take another inch of the land as Christ conquers the nations. Because the church is going to take it one inch at a time. And that, brothers and sisters, makes the battle worth it. Fourth, brothers and sisters, this doctrine gives us hope. It makes us wake up differently. Not feeling defeated every day. Not feeling like giving up because our efforts are going to be futile in the end. It really highlights... Other views do in their own way. But this doctrine really highlights the current kingship of the Lord Jesus. That he really does have all authority. That he really is exercising all authority. That he really does win. And that he really is Lord of all things. Knowing that he will conquer and have dominion in this age gives us hope as we look out at a dark world. Because all is not lost. God is in the business of redemption, reconciliation, and restoration, and these things will be seen on the earth. Now, I'm closing now. I'm not doing the preacher trick either. I actually had like one paragraph, so we're actually closing. I'm sure that I've not convinced many of you in just one sermon, and that's okay because it was, that didn't work for me either in one shot. Good believers can disagree. And as I said in the introduction, I still have a lot to study, and I know that I could be wrong. So let me just end with this. No matter what position you take on the end times, we all believe that the things that I've mentioned this evening will eventually happen in one way or another. Amen? Jesus is Lord, and he shall have dominion, Psalm 72, verse 8. Jesus is Lord. So we all look forward to that, the day of his dominion. And we hope in the day of his dominion, and we rejoice in it as well. This world will be conquered by the Lord Jesus Christ. It's only a matter of when and how. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you so much that you've given us your word, that we might hope in it, that we might see what it says. Lord, I pray that you would help us all to study out this doctrine that I've laid before us this evening. God, above all, help us to hope in your Son. Help us to believe that this world is his. 
And help us to do what the church is commanded to do, and that is preach the gospel and conquer one soul at a time in the name of our Lord who has all authority in heaven and on the earth. Lord, please bless us and equip us for this. May he have dominion. May our Lord Jesus have dominion. We pray this in his name. Amen.